0: and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-conspirator Daniel Larison as we contrive new ways to pop the bubble that is the Washington foreign policy establishment and let all of the hot air out. Today we will be talking to the Cato Institute's Justin Logan about the current state of the war in Ukraine, European security and the future of NATO. But first, let's talk about the lambasting that French President Emmanuel Macron has been getting from all over the mark for his comments on Taiwan and China and getting in the middle of both. Macron gave an interview to Political over a week ago in which he suggested, God forbid, that France has its own national and European interests. The question we need to answer, he said, quote, as Europeans, Europeans is the following, is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No, end quote. He said Europe should chafe against becoming U.S. vassals, and he dared to use that word, adding, quote, the worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and take our cue from the U.S. agenda and a Chinese overreaction, end quote. Well, you would have thought he was suggesting that the West should just turn Taiwan over to the Chinese for all the caterwauling in response on both sides of the Atlantic to his comments, Hawks in Congress, like Senator Ted Young, a Republican from Indiana and member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said Macron's statements were, quote, embarrassing. They were disgraceful and very geopolitically naive, end quote. Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey said, quote, if France is truly committed to abandoning democratic nations in favor of a brutal communist regime, the United States must reassess its posture towards France adding that his comments, Macron's comments, were a seeming betrayal of democratic Taiwan. Meanwhile, European elites took a similar tack, and this week members of the European Parliament voted in favor of scheduling a debate on the issue in the next session, warning Macron's words were a, quote, detriment to all who face the malignant intents of the autocracies. Upon leaving for China last week, hawkish German Defense Minister Annalena Baerbock played the role of the anti-Macron, while the press said she set out to basically counter uh, Macron's comments a week before. Quote, we are currently seeing how important it is to have partners around the world who share our values at our side when we face our own security threats. That is why it's so important for us, because we are vulnerable as Germany and as European Union, that we cannot be indifferent to the tensions of the Taiwan Strait. So Dan, what is this kerfuffle really about? Because it's been about a week, and the story seems to have endless legs. Um, do you think Macron will stick to his proverbial guns on this, or will he cave to the Borg?
1: My, I, I think uh, in, in this case, uh, Macron thinks that resistance is not futile. Uh, he <laughs> is—he's very—he's uh, very committed to this idea of strategic autonomy for Europe. He, he keeps bringing it up. People keep swatting him down, but he—he's not discouraged by that. He—he. He, Besides, It seems to me that he genuinely believes, as as other French leaders in the past have believed, that France and Europe ought to have their own uh, great power status or or their uh, own—they should serve as an independent pole distinct from the United States uh, in world politics. They they think that Europe is large enough and powerful enough and wealthy enough, and it is, uh, to have such a role— uh, if only Europeans were willing to take up that mantle. And so what, one of the things he's been uh, beating the drum about is that Europe needs to uh, take more responsibility for itself, needs to uh, shoulder more of the burden for itself, uh, but in return for doing that, it should also have a greater say and its own independent say in uh, in the issues of the day. And, and really, that's all that Macron was saying. A lot of... the the criticisms of what Macron said in his interview uh, were huge, either based on huge distortions of what he said or very serious misunderstandings of what he said. Uh, And I know uh, Responsible Statecraft published a great piece by Elder Momadov shortly after all of this came out uh, in which he was explaining, first of all, what Macron meant, which, which wasn't that Europe should abandon Taiwan or... Throw in with the Chinese or something, but that it should seek to have its own position. Uh, and and I and I pointed out in, in response to him that one of the things that gets lost in a lot of the argument about what Macron said is that Macron acknowledged that there's a lot of overlap between the European and American positions, and there will be places where the U.S. and Europe agree uh, on on a lot of things, but that it s- shouldn't simply be taken for granted that Europe's going to side with the U.S. on everything and that it's going to be uh, simply echoing the American position. Uh, they may come to the same conclusion about things that we do, uh, but they're going to do it for, by themselves in their own way uh, for their own interests. And so you know, I think it was this, it's this question of, of do we want our allies to be vassals, as Macron talked about, or do we want them to be equal and independent partners? And I think the answer in Washington, unfortunately, for a lot of people, is that we absolutely want Europe to be a vassal. We expect them to be a vassal. If they, if they start to get ideas of being something else, well, then it's time to start suppressing the peasants. And so this is, this is the, uh, the problem that we keep running into every time the Europeans get the idea of trying to be more self-sufficient and do more for their own security. The U.S. comes in and swats them down and tells them, how dare you even think of such a thing? And unfortunately, they have a lot of people in Europe uh, siding with them. A lot of a lot of top European officials, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, are perfectly fine with the status quo. They don't want to to change anything. They they like being dependent on the U.S. Uh, and they're, they're they're satisfied with the way things are. Uh, Macron, and you know maybe this is because of something peculiarly French uh, about the way he looks at things. Uh, you know, France considers itself, even today, a, a significant world power, and so it wants to act as one, and it's going to talk about things as though it is, uh, whether we really recognize them as, as that or not. And so what what we're really seeing is this this fight between a U.S.-led system uh, and the, the emergence of multipolarity, uh, where Europe wants to be one of those poles— or so, some in Europe want to be part of one of those polls. Uh, and you have the U.S. and all, many in Europe that want to, to stick with the status quo.
0: Yeah, and I find, like, the, uh, the criticism very superficial because, you know, this idea that you cannot criticize um, or you can't you, – you have to bend the knee to the uh, criticism of China at all times. And so, if a world leader like Macron uh, issues a more pr- pragmatic view, then somehow he's being weak, he's being being mealy-mouthed, um, he's betraying Taiwan. And so, I feel like the, the comments themselves that he made and the and the response to it was very superficial because it's coming from the same people in the Republican Party who cheered on. President Trump just a few years ago, when Trump was lambasting NATO for taking a free ride on the U.S. dole and not paying their fair share, and so it's it, what we're seeing is uh, voices in 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 uh, Washington talking out both sides of their mouths, and so on one hand, like you point out, Dan, they want they want uh, Europe to take more responsibility, but they don't. They don't want them to talk down the U.S. So I guess it's the way you talk about it. So what if Macron just walked out there and he says, "Come on, Europeans, you know we need to pay our fair share. We can't get a free ride anymore. Um, let's do this." What were the what would those Republicans say? Like, uh, he's actually parroting uh, President Trump. I think it was the way Macron said what he did, using the word vassals, and then you have. The, the the whole uh, pitfall of talking about China in any way that doesn't frame it as an evil scourge or a threat to the West, and so that's where Macron fell short in the core of of public opinion. But like you point out, Dan, he's not he's not saying anything um, that these uh, that many of these American critics haven't suggested. Uh, Would be the right way to go in the future. And, and let's face it, anybody, look at, look at what, uh, President Lula of Brazil, the attacks that he is getting for visiting Russia and meeting with Lavrov, the, the foreign minister, uh, over the last 24 hours. Uh, John Kirby, the spokesman for National Security Council came right out and said that, that Lula was parroting, and I'm quoting here, parroting Russian propaganda. By going to Russia and saying things like, we need peace and offering himself up as sort of a, a peace broker and, and talking in the way he did about needing the, the need for this war to, to, to go into some um, passage of uh, negotiated so- settlement. So we have our own um, spokespeople, our official Washington calling our partners in our own hemisphere, propagandists, because we don't like what they say, and this is happening um, over and again.
1: Well, absolutely, and it shows that there's really, it's the same with us or against us mentality that we had back in the the bad old days of the Bush administration, and it's come back again in full force, where if you don't tow the U.S. line 100% of the time, uh, then you're you're either unreliable or you're, you're working for the other side. And it, it's simply not viable, and, and it's not credible to, to all of these countries across Latin America and Africa and much of Asia, where they they know that it's not the case that they're actually taking the other side. They're they're trying to be uh, non-aligned between the two camps that are forming, and they they don't they're not going to appreciate being hectored and, and uh, ridiculed by Washington. Uh, and in the end, they're they're going to decide that they'd rather do business with the the governments that don't constantly berate them.
0: up, we have Justin Logan joining us on the show today. Justin is a director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. His articles have appeared in International Security, the Journal of Strategic Studies, Strategic Studies Quarterly, Foreign Policy, the National Interest, National Review, Politico, and many more. Welcome to the show today, Justin.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, you've been arguing for some time now that the U.S. needs to find more ways to cut the cord and allow Europeans to start taking responsibility for its own security. You've argued that NATO has outlived its mission and there must be a rethinking of the alliance and its purpose for the 21st century. You've continued to argue these themes despite the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year. In fact, you recently released a paper on the need for increased burden sharing on behalf of European allies and partners called Uncle Sucker. In it, you say, the only way to produce more equitable burden sharing is to make allies doubt the strength of the U.S. commitment. The stronger the belief in the U.S. commitment, the harder it is to get allies to defend themselves. Unless policymakers fundamentally change their approach to alliances, there is little hope that defense burdens can be spread more equitably. But yet the tide of the mainstream media and the mainstream and mainstream Washington seems to be going in the other direction. An article published just Monday by the New York Times announced that the that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is revolutionizing NATO military strategy, which is the headline, and the need for more, more integration of American allied war pr- plans, more military spending, more detailed requirements for allies to have specific kinds of forces and equipment to fight, if necessary, in preassigned places. The article quoted people like Evo Dalder saying things like, quote, NATO is an organization that took a holiday from history, but Putin has, quote, reminded us that we have to think about defense and think about it collectively. So, Justin, do you feel like you're screaming into the wind these days? Would you mind taking a moment to tell us why those who believe in and are spreading the NATO has a renewed purpose narrative are actually doing Americans and even Europeans a disservice?
2: Yeah. So to begin with, I pretty much always feel like I'm screaming into the void, although, you know, a little bit less so now than than otherwise. Um, I think to start at the beginning, right, the story that we tell ourselves, the story that IR scholars tell, the story that kind of Americans tell is that we fought two big bloody wars in Europe and engaged in a multi trillion dollar Cold War in Europe for counter hegemonic purposes, and the public doesn't use the word counter hegemonic, but the IR people do. Um, and the basic premise is we didn't want one country to dominate Europe, right? So World War I, World War II, um, Germany, the culprit and the Cold War, of course, the Soviet Union was the looming danger. And I think in the contemporary day, in the year of our Lord 2023, it's quite clear that the counter-hegemonic U.S. project in Europe has been accomplished. There is no prospective hegemon on the horizon or indeed over the horizon for at least a generation, that is to say 20 years. Another way of putting it would be the policy-relevant future, right? You can't make policy with an eye to, you know, kind of more than 20 years down the road. So if there's no country that threatens to dominate Europe – to conquer enough of its territory or to have enough uh, economic power that it can determine political decisions made by other states under its uh, 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 tutelage, then the security problem in Europe or security problems, as they may be, that confront Americans are actually quite limited. Now, in the meantime, as that counter hegemonic project has been accomplished and achieved, NATO, of course, has accumulated 31 going on 32 members. Um, and many of those members, for very understandable, narrow, nationalistic reasons, feel a lot of insecurity. It makes a lot of sense to me, perfect sense, that if I were in Riga or Tallinn or, um, you know, any other, Warsaw even, um, I would feel a lot of anxiety about Russian uh, uh, risk tolerance, right? The great uh, formula for risk is capabilities times intentions. And I think those countries understandably focus on the intentions side of the, the ledger, and Russia's intentions look pretty nasty uh, if you're anywhere geographically close to Russia. Um, and I would just counter, you know, that the capabilities side of the ledger, Russia um, Russia's having a hell of a time pulverizing what is on paper a much smaller, much weaker um, neighbor. And so the further afield Russia gets, the worse things get for Russia, And, you know, the United States, such as we are, um, has weak, friendly neighbors to the north and south and fish to the east and west. And that's a great spot. So I think the the danger that Americans should feel from Russian aggression is asymptotically close to zero. And at the same time, it's understandable that the Baltic states or Poland um, feel differently. And so you really have different threat perceptions inside NATO, um, even as far as France and Germany, right? It's quite clear that France and Germany are anxious about the war in Ukraine. They don't like the war in Ukraine. They think it reveals something nasty about Russia, but they don't really feel that threatened, right? The zeitenwende vaunted though it was when announced, has really fizzled and been revealed as an accounting gimmick. Um, and I think anybody who thinks that France and Germany are going to bring serious surges of military power to bear in the policy relevant future are foolhardy. And the reason they're not doing that is because the United States at every uh, interval rushes in to reassure its allies when things start to look scary. And there's really a zero sum trade-off between reassuring your allies and getting more effort out of them. If you think about the notionally perfectly reassured ally that has metaphysical certainty um, that the United States efforts on its behalf are accurate or are adequate rather and can be counted on, then it should probably spend zero on defense because Uncle Sucker, to use the title of my paper, which I stole from Dwight Eisenhower, is on the hook for it. And if you take the other side of the ledger, if you have an ally that has no reassurance that the United States will be there for it. You would look for that state to engage in either internal balancing, building up its own military, or external balancing, looking for help from other places outside. The fact that you don't see that suggests that, um, you know, we have favored reassurance over burden sharing in our policies in Europe.
0: So what about the new accession to, of Finland to the NATO alliance? There seemed to be a sort of, oh, well, or meh, you know, in generally about that. But it really did change the borders of of NATO right up against Russian territory. And we know that weapons are are likely to be placed there. I don't know about nuclear weapons, but can you talk a little bit about how you've reacted to this new membership, uh, this new expansion and what it might mean Uh, going forward, particularly
2: in the context of the Ukraine war? Yeah, I mean, it's still early to say, but I think we can look to past rounds of expansion to suggest uh, what this one portends. So the Baltic states were admitted to NATO in 2004, um, and NATO had no plan for their defense until 2010, um, when they came after the Russian invasion of Georgia, pleading, very understandably, to NATO headquarters to say, guys, we've been in the alliance for six years and Russia has invaded another small, weak country on its border. And we kind of sort of think that Article 5 suggests that we should have a defense plan. Um, and it's ironic that, you know, you mentioned Ivo Dalder quoted in the New York Times article as, you know, saying NATO took a holiday from history. Um, Dalder was sort of cabling back and forth from his station with the US government in Europe at the time. And the position of NATO. NATO at the time was to create a defense plan for the Baltics would be provocative to Russia and therefore it shouldn't be done. Right. And, And so some of us would say, Maybe bringing them into the alliance and giving them an Article 5 commitment was the provocation. And if you're going to do that, you have an obligation to your own citizens and indeed to the citizens that you've made that commitment to to actually kind of sort of, you know, have a plan for their defense. And that ultimately was done. But I think, you know, not in a meaningful way that slaked the thirst of those countries for um, greater deterrence for greater security. So I think the Finland question has really been elevated in the American discourse as a way to stick it to Putin. And the talking point is, you know, Putin allegedly went into Ukraine over fear of NATO. Well, guess what he got? NATO expansion. And I think the Biden administration, for reasons that escape me, is going to campaign on this for reelection. They're going to come out and say, Vladimir Putin went into Ukraine to push back NATO and got NATO expansion in response. And they think – I don't know what they think the political impact of that is going to be. But I think it is the desire to say we got something out of our 130 or so billion dollars that we've spent on the war in Ukraine thus far – just to me, it's not much of a prize. I mean, I have, you know, it is true that the Finnish military is much more capable than many NATO militaries are. To me, that's a commentary on NATO itself, more than it is on Finland. But Finland has people that can and will fight. Um, but it also has an 812 mile border that to be brought up to NATO's standards is going to require, to my mind, a significant amount of additional effort. And so I think, you know, the costs as so frequently is the case are down the road and the uh, liabilities are here and now. And so, um, you know, we're really going to be paying for uh, Finnish and I think ultimately Swedish accession to NATO uh, over a period of years and decades and, you know, clapping each other on the back today about uh, how we've stuck it to Putin.
1: Right. And unfortunately, I think that's, that's probably uh, going to be the case. And I mean, one of the things that is striking about our commitments in Europe is that so many of them are uh, simply security dependents. They, they are, they are relying on the U.S. to bail them out in the event that there ever is a conflict or a crisis. Um, and, and that means that they're, they're essentially liabilities for us, uh, no matter i sure what happens. Uh, in your paper, uh, you talk about allies, and you say that they are need factories, and I thought that was a great way of describing it because we we constantly hear, no matter how much reassurance the U.S. provides to its allies, we always hear that they, they're still uncertain of our commitment. They're, they're still uh, unhappy with how much we're doing. They, we need to do more. And so they expect more, and they complain if they don't get it. And so Washington then rushes to fill this new gap uh, that has been opened up. Um, And and why shouldn't they do that when we almost never tell them no? Uh, Why is it that the U.S. won't refuse these allied requests to always do more for them? Why why does the U.S. always keep rushing into that gap?
2: I think that the um, alliance really is Um, uh, Janus-faced. When you have these discussions about adding new members to NATO – The discussion is all about liberalism and democracy and tall, handsome men in well-tailored suits and good wine at the receptions and things of this nature. And then on the back end, when understandable real security concerns crop up, we're reminded that this Article 5 commitment is a serious treaty commitment and that we need to put military muscle behind it to deter our allies. And I think if you look at you know, for example, the debates over expansion to the Baltics, there was no discussion about the security requirements for adding these countries to the alliance. And, you know, the only quote by the author Porfirio Diaz that I know um, is, you know, he's writing from Mexico about the United States and He wrote, pobre Mexico, tan lejos de Dios y tan cerca de los Estados Unidos. Poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States, right? A little bit of a cynical jab at the United States from a Mexican author. But so much of what we're trying to do vis-a-vis NATO and Europe is obviate geography. You know, and the Diaz quote is a little bit of recognition of the geography is kind of sort of immutable. And you just, you know, you get what you get. And I think that, you know, what we've been trying to do in Europe is obviate geography. And, you know, we've kind of sort of if you're going to be engaged in that project, it hasn't completely gone off the rails thus far. But my question would be, why do you want to engage in that project? Right. And I don't think we can shove enough uh, men and materiel into the bolts. To slake their thirst for additional units of effort, and again i you know th- this paper is kind of weird for me because analytically it's very nationalistic, right It supposes that u s interests and Lithuanian interests. Are not the same, right? So that's just like a kind of analytical, analytically nationalist framework. I'm not a big nationalist guy. I'm not a Toby Keith, you know, red, white, and blue, you know, foot in your whatever, you know, that was during the the Bush years. Um, but it is kind of analytically nationalist by just supposing that different countries have different interests, right? And be it Ukraine or you know Lithuania or whomever. Um, and it really is, you know, I sort of tried to tie myself in knots to say. I think these countries are fine places and I like their peoples, you know, as well as anybody. Um, they're separate countries from my own. And that if we want to undertake, you know, a very serious commitment on their behalf, we ought to take it seriously for what it is, which is a serious, uh, defense military commitment, not just a cocktail party.
1: Well, definitely. And, and I, I wish that the, the the debates over, expansion of nato or, or the consideration of other security commitments uh did take that seriously and but, but as you say it's i mean one one way that i talk about it is that they we hand out security commitments like handing out candy uh at halloween Uh it, it's simply something that we we do with it almost reflexively without without thinking about the consequences and so we've yeah. accumulated dozens and dozens of allies uh around the world uh if you if you go by all the the formal treaty agreements we have security uh, defense commitments to, I think, over 50 countries around the world, uh, and and potentially risking great power war on behalf of of many of them. And so we we run risks we don't have to for a lot of countries that could probably take care of their own defense anyway. And we run a much higher military budget than our own defense requires. And so I guess the question then is, we we see plenty of costs here, but, but what are the actual benefits that the U.S. gets from all of this effort and all of this expense?
2: I mean, I think that the same case for this is essentially to say we get outsized influence over our allies' policies, right? And you can look at that in the context of the Ukraine war. Um, I view that kind of as a demerit rather than a merit in the sense that, you know, we have to pay a lot more than we should have to pay. Um, But I think in that trade-off between control and burden sharing, US policymakers have tended to favor control. And if you look at, and I go into some short detail in the paper about this, there were fledgling European efforts in the 1990s and early 2000s to get their act together on security outside the confines of NATO. So common foreign and security policy, ESDP, and then we wound up with PESCO, permanent structured cooperation. And I think there are a lot of reasons to discount these things, to think that there were sort of centrifugal reasons that um, the Europeans were going to have a heck of a time cooperating in a meaningful way on what is kind of sort of a state-building project, right? Because ideally, you don't want to have 15 navies and 20 air forces and 23 armies, right? You would be kind of consolidating these military functions. But what was the United States' response to this? We complain about burden sharing since Eisenhower, remember? Nicholas Burns, who was at NATO, the U.S. ambassador to NATO in 2003, um, went in and pounded the table and said, European security cooperation outside the confines of NATO poses the greatest threat to the transatlantic relationship out there. Not a threat to NATO, not a threat to U.S. leadership in Europe. His phrasing was the transatlantic relationship. Which is to say we were going to poison relations with the Europeans if they became strategically more autonomous, to use the phrase of a, of a later era. To me, that's nuts. But it goes to show, and if you read Chris Lane, um, who wrote a whole book called Peace of Illusions that gets into this, the United States didn't want a third pole in Europe. After the Eisenhower administration, despite public repeated complaints about European free riding or cheap riding or what have you. And I think there's a weird, you know, if we want to get into the 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 sort of IR of this, a lot of people say we're containing China because China is this illiberal power. Well, say whatever one may about the Europeans. They're not illiberal, right? And if the United States was containing European power. At a time when it was illiberal, then it tells us something important about U.S. foreign policy and international relations, which is to say it might not be the case that the United States contains illiberal powers because they're illiberal but contains any power that appears as a competitor to the United
1: States. Well, and, and we see this with the, the reaction or overreaction to Macron's recent comments about uh, strategic autonomy. Uh, he, he keeps trying to bring it up and it keeps getting uh, knocked down. Uh his concern is that he, he says he doesn't want Europe to be a vassal, and, and what we're seeing, uh, both from the U.S. reaction and from this this history that you're talking about, is that the U.S. really does want to have uh, vassals in Europe, and it resents the, the suggestion that they stop being vassals, right?
2: I mean, I think what the United States to do would like is for European militaries to be extremely powerful and to do exactly what Washington tells them to do when we tell them to do them. And that's not a bargain that the Europeans are likely to take, right? If the United States has overweening military power in the defense of Europe, then the Europeans are going to shirk. They're going to have more expansive pension programs. They're going to have better infrastructure, beautiful museum, subsidize any range of domestic economic activities. And I have to say, I can't fault them for that, right? It's, you know, I sort of fault US policymakers in this much more than I do, um, Foreign heads of state, right? It's very difficult to take on the United States frontally or even obliquely, as you've suggested vis-a-vis Macron. And if you're going to be dominated by an outside power, you know, you might as well be able to go to the Louvre. And, you know, I I think the Europeans have tended to invest in things like that, whereas absent the United States, there's a good reason to believe that they would be much more serious about producing their own military power and pooling their own military resources across countries.
0: So, Justin, I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you one last question. Um, You raised the specter of China. Is NATO – sort of formulating a new uh, mission and directing some of its resources, or are they expected to direct any of their resources towards China vis-a-vis the Taiwan issue? I mean, I feel like I read headlines every day, and some of them are coming out from uh, Jen Stoltenberg, head of NATO, where he is at a press conference and he talks about the alliance and he talks about um, European and Western uh, unity on the issue of defending Taiwan's democracy or independence or whatever the word of the day is. But there seems to be a sort of commingling between the Western U.S. interests and um, pushing back on on China. And and NATO and do you see that opening up as a new front uh, for 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 NATO's mission at some point or as it has it already opened up?
2: I, mean, I think that the basic European play here, and if you talk to European diplomats, what they will tell you is that their fear is that Europe come to be viewed from Washington as a theater rather than a global partner. So what they want to do is to keep the United States deeply involved in European security affairs, while at the same time realizing that U.S. elites really have their eyes on East Asia in general and China in particular. So what they've begun to do is to do militarily superfluous, trivial things like send a frigate into the South China Sea or liaise with Indo-PACOM, which gets lonely sometimes and likes to see Europeans stopping in for a dram, Um, and saying that they are a partner in the U.S. military project of containing China. Now, the Europeans won't say we're a partner in the U.S. military project of containing China, but that's the allusion that they're trying to make. And the question here is whether the Americans will be stupid enough to believe that the Europeans are going to make a militarily relevant contribution to the containment or indeed war fighting against China. Now, the answer to this question is a metaphysically certain no. Under no circumstances will the German or French navies fight China full stop ever. It's not going to happen for very sound reasons. But they realize that keeping the Americans on the hook for Europe um, requires pretending to go along for the ride in East Asia. And so we may unfortunately need Uncle Sucker Part Two to recapitulate just how profoundly gullible U.S. elites are in terms of thinking that there's a bargain to be struck between A trivial, meaningless European exertion in East Asia in exchange for 80 or 100 billion dollars a year of U.S. exertion on behalf of Europe. And I think you're even starting to see some of the smartest China hawks say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is the deal here? What is the proposition? Because they would rather have that 80 or 100 billion bucks a year uh, in submarines and surface fleet that they've been complaining about. So I'm actually quite concerned that American elites will go for this deal and smile and nod and say, oh, okay, great. We have the French and the Germans along for the ride in East Asia, which is just a complete delusion.
0: Right. But the optics are good. Because then the Biden administration go out there and say, well, the whole global community, including our European partners, uh, NATO, what have you, are all on board in this project to contain China. And I know they don't often use the word contain, but it, it, it is um, it, it's clear that they want to produce some sort of image that we have more people on our side than they really do. Maybe they think that's worth a (laughs) hundred billion dollars, (laughs) but I don't know, but uh, we've run out of time, but I would love to have you back on the show to talk about uncle sucker too, because I do feel like it's, it's, it's an important issue. And after seeing that New York times piece uh, glorifying um, the new, the the new NATO purpose, I feel like we're going to be talking and debating about this for some time.
2: It's always nice to see you guys. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for
1: being here. Thank
0: you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.